my name is Thomas Davis. I'm the minister of Carloway Free Church on the Isle of Lewis in the northwest of Scotland. Hello, my name is Andy Longway. I'm the minister of London City Presbyterian Church in the heart of our nation's capital. And welcome to the Jesus Today podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again. uh, We're so grateful to you all for listening and we're always so grateful to hear back from you. Uh, It's a huge encouragement to get feedback. uh, A reminder that you can connect with us through our email, hello at jesustodaypodcast.com and you can also be in touch through Twitter, uh, jesustodaypod. Uh, We really appreciate your feedback. We love uh, the fact that you're on this journey with us uh, and we hope and pray that uh, that we are helping uh, one another to follow Jesus today uh, as our Savior our Lord, our brother, our King. Well, Thomas, today we have another special. Um, as many of your listeners know, we recently uh, were speaking about the passing of Professor Donald MacLeod. Today really is the day he was laid to rest in, in Lewis. And so um, we've got a special guest on, Hunter Nicholson. Many of you may have come across him because he wrote that um obituary of uh, Professor McLeod on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Hunter's a dear friend and colleague of ours, and we are so glad to be joined today with the world's leading expert on Donald McLeod. Hunter is just finishing off a PhD uh, on uh, Donald McLeod's theology. So welcome to our podcast today, Hunter. It's great to be here, and uh, I will pay you $5 every time you you, uh, call me the leading expert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so good to have you with us, Hunter. Um, and as Andy said, you are you are such a dear friend to us. Um, we'd love you to just introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit uh, about you. Yeah, uh, so I am from originally from Mississippi in the states, and I attended Reformed Theological Seminary in Mississippi. And for the past three years, I've been living uh, here in Edinburgh, working on a. PhD in systematic theology at New College. And while I'm here, uh, I work part-time at uh, St. Columbus Free Church as a minister in training. And my research at New College focuses on uh, the work of Donald McLeod, who just passed away. Just before we get into Donald McLeod, I have to tell the listeners that Hunter has introduced me into the fascinating world of college football. And because of Hunter, I now support Ole Miss and oh, I no. and I hate Alabama. <laughs> this is what I was told. I have to yes, hotty toddy. <laughs> so, all you guys listening on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, I have no idea if I'm right or wrong in those convictions, but I am entirely following Hunter's uh, discipleship into my my journey into uh, into college football. That's wonderful, as you should. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a quick question to get us going. What uh, led you to do a PhD on um, the work of Donald McLeod? Yeah, well, um, I mean, Andy, I met you uh, 12 years ago because I did a semester abroad in Scotland and got involved in the free church. So, um, you know, b- before I was interested in research, before I was even interested in ministry, um, the free church of Scotland had a, had a big impact on my life. Mm. Um and so I first heard the name Donald McLeod when I was living over here. But when I went to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, uh, when you take, when I took Christology, I don't know if it's still the case, but when I took Christology, um, McLeod's book, The Person of Christ and Christ Crucified, were the two required textbooks for the Christology course. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone was getting a familiarity with McLeod and his work. 
um, and, and in one sense, sitting under him as their teacher in Christology. Uh, so you know, people in Scotland may not be aware of the impact that MacLeod has had outside of Scotland. Um, he's he's what widely read in the U.S. in evangelical circles. Um, and then I became interested in in doing studies after RTS. And there were there were ideas that I had read about in MacLeod that I was interested in picking up on. Um, I originally contacted James Eglinton about doing a PhD under his supervision about Donald McLeod's uh, doctrine of sin as anomia, and we can talk about that in a minute. Mm. Uh, and and, and uh, Dr. Edlington was really excited by that, in part because um, he himself had studied under McLeod. So it was a really great opportunity to be supervised by someone who not only was well acquainted with McLeod's work, but had, had been a student of his. So in one sense, knew McLeod, like, like both of you do, in a way that I, I don't. Mm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it all worked out. And so we moved here, I'm married with three kids. We moved here in 2020. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, and it is, like you say, I think, um, just fascinating to hear that influence that he has, um, you know, not just in Scotland, but overseas. So could you maybe just summarize a wee bit about what your research is about? You know, um, uh, you mentioned maybe a bit about his doctrine of sin, is it broader than that? Tell us some of the things that you're that you're looking at in in the code. Yeah, so I mean, the thing about PhD research is it's always really focused on a specific topic. Mm. So you know, it would be great to write a book about McLeod, you know, about just McLeod in general, mm. and, and maybe someone will one day, maybe a, a wonderful biography. Um, I'm I'm focusing on one aspect of his theology, which is his doctrine of divine passibility. Mm -hmm. um, it's broader than this, but one way to define passibility is, 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 is it's about this question, does God suffer? Mm. And I think any, any Christian would say, in one sense, of course, God must suffer because Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. Yeah. Um, but historically, the way that we talk about Christ suffering on the cross is um, Christ suffered in his human nature, but not in his divine nature. That would be an orthodox way of describing what it meant for God to suffer on the cross. McLeod took a, a slightly a different position from that. He would say that not only could God suffer on the cross in, in, in Christ's human nature, but that God himself in his divine nature has suffered, can, can suffer. Uh, and, and in doing that, he knowingly bucks tradition uh, and challenges tradition on that point. And, um, so I would, I would always want to couch what I just said within a much larger framework of understanding McLeod, which is that McLeod was a fierce defender of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was interested in retrieving a lot of historic Scottish theology. So what I'm studying is, I think what, what a lot of people would say, is a bit of an anomaly within McLeod's work. So I'm not making the claim that this is what McLeod is should most be known for, yeah. but it's a fascinating part of his thought. And, and so my research is just about understanding how he gets to the point that he gets at in his thinking on this, what influences are coming into his thought, and how it affects other parts of his theology, mm -hmm. like his doctrine of the image of, image of God and man and his doctrine of sin. What I'm saying is Donald McLeod is 
one of the most influential theologians of the past hundred years. And I'm just trying to add one piece of the of knowledge about understanding who he was. Yeah. So interesting what you said there about about, you know, maybe bucking the trend against tradition. I remember being in a class with Donald McLeod where he, he mentioned it briefly. He like you say, he didn't major on this, but he did touch on it very, very briefly. And he was talking about how each generation of the church has to be ready to to think and to wrestle with things. And I can remember him very vividly saying, for example, I think the church has been wrong for hundreds of years on the question of, of divine passability. And it's like, I, I, whether you agree with it or not, to just have the courage to say something like that was, was, was admirable. So often I find myself, you know, we're, you know, we can approach our opinions thinking, well, uh, whatever I think, I just wanted to be, you know, what everybody else thinks. And, we can kind of think, and, and for him to be, you know, to have that courage to say that was, uh, was striking. It's really interesting because I think that's, um, you know, it, it's kind of his, his willingness to stand out like that is what can make him frustrating in a lot of situations to a lot of people. And it's also what people loved about him. So it's that same tendency that would make him challenge tradition in that sense would also make him um, want to uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith, which at, at the time that he was writing in the 70s and 80s in the context of Scottish theology was 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 laughed at by a lot of people. And, and here comes a guy who says, no, we need we need the Westminster Confession. Um, and, and we were wrong for trying to do away with it. Hunter, just before we, we dig into some of his, his theology, two questions. First question is, what was it like studying a living theologian? Because for most of your studies, Donald uh, was was alive, and I, I know you've corresponded with him. And then, just on the back of that, could you tell us a bit about Donald as a as a man, a bit of his biography, please? Yeah. So, it is unusual to study a living theologian. It happens. Um, there's people that do it here all the time uh, at New College. I can answer the question two ways. One is that when I talk to people like you two. Uh, I bring a certain kind of knowledge to the discussion about Donald McLeod, but one of the one of the joys was hearing other people who knew McLeod in a way that I will never know him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I mean, I loved to go to ETS and you know talk to one of the professors there, and you know, you know, I may be the one studying McLeod, but I'm always wanting to go to these people and say, "You tell me your stories about McLeod." Um, mm-hmm. And people have just the, people have just wonderful anecdotes about him about what he was like as a preacher. Like, uh, for instance, I saw uh, on Facebook, someone posted a few days ago that um, he spoke at a conference that this, this person was at. And uh, the first thing McLeod said when he opened his sermon was, uh, you know, as I was driving here, thinking about what I should preach on to you people. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so just things like that, that, you know, it, it if no one writes that down, it gets lost to history. And, mm. you know, who knows what wonderful anecdotes about Calvin and Bavink that we've, we've lost because, yeah. you know. and so that, that was a real joy of studying a living theologian. People could tell you what it was like to actually be with them and, and they knew them. And I think the other thing that it made me do was I, I think I've been more aware than most people of not wanting to say something not true about the person you're studying. Mm. I had every expectation that McLeod was going to read my work after I had finished it. So I think I was just, I was much more self-conscious of the fact that I wanted, you know, even if I disagreed with him, which I, I do at different points in the writing, even if I disagreed with him, I wanted to be able to face him and be able to say, you know, that I haven't misrepresented you. I've tried to represent you as faithfully as I could. I think that's just a fascinating thing to, um, uh, to experience. And it just teaches you a care 
in terms of of how you handle your subject, which which actually should should shape what we do. And a wee, a wee anecdote I came across regarding William Cunningham was uh, he engaged in a lot of correspondence, kind of hostile correspondence, really through articles with a guy called William Hamilton. They were disagreeing on various things. Hamilton was quite critical of the of the confession. Um, and Cunningham was trying to defend, and in between Cunningham writing an article and it getting him, and it getting published, Hamilton died, and afterwards Cunningham added a footnote to say, "If I had known what was going to happen, my tone would have been different." You know, and uh, it was some um, some fascinating, fascinating thing. So yeah, that's I think that's a lesson for us all. You know, whatever whoever we're handling, whoever we're talking about, um, such a such a wise and important thing to. To think through, um, I don't know if you can answer this in one or two sentences. But you know, coming to coming to 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 Donald McLeod, what what's he about? What how could you summarise what is McLeod about as as a theologian, um, as a man? Yeah, I mean, when I wrote the Gospel Coalition piece, the three things that I mentioned were he was a defender of the Westminster Confession. He was well known for retrieving Scottish theology, historic theology. Um, and those two things, of course, are tied together. And then he also was known for preaching the cross. And I think that for people that don't know McLeod, that gets lost in translation because mm. every pastor wants to be known for preaching the cross, right? We, we preach Christ and him crucified. I think what most people mean when they apply that to McLeod is their favorite sermons of McLeod's were when he was actually preaching on the texts about the cross, mm. um, and what it meant for Christ to be incarnate, for God to become man. Um, what it, he, you know, he loved to talk about things like kenosis and what it meant for Christ to, to condescend to humanity and all of the humiliation that that involved. I watched some of the funeral in Stornoway and I didn't catch the, everything that was said at the beginning because the YouTube video was on mute. But at the end, it, it, the, uh, the pastor talked about how McLeod loved to talk about the love of God and I think that would be the other major distinctive, especially of his preaching, was the love of God. Um, and again, the, it's, that can get lost in translation. But I, he said in a sermon once, the hardest thing for people to believe about God is not his power or his omnipresence or any of the other attributes. The hardest thing for people to believe about God is that he could love them. Mm-hmm. And I think McLeod believed that himself. And because he believed that, that was where a lot of his great emphasis and his preaching lay was convincing people that however far you've gone from who you should be, uh, you are not too far from the grasp of God to pull you back. Yeah. Wow. One of the things that, that, that frustratingly was, was, was muted, you know, in that live stream, um, James McKeever, the minister who took it, he quoted Donald McLeod. I, I can't remember it word for word, but, but basically quoted Donald McLeod where he'd written, if if all your preaching is sin and judgment and predestination and hell, he said you are not being a faithful herald, uh, because he said we've been sent with good news and he was pushing back on what is what's probably become, what, what was I think at risk of becoming a characteristic of particularly Highland Presbyterianism maybe maybe in the second half of the twentieth century where the, the the message was 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 a was a strong emphasis on the negative aspect of of the gospel um which is is part of the news but but donald was saying if that's all you've got it's it's not enough 
And, and I remember that from his lectures. One of the many things that stuck with me was he says, you, you are going out with good news. People who come to hear you on Sunday have to hear good mm. news. And that's one of the many things that, that he said that's, that I, I hope has shaped my ministry. You mentioned earlier on anomia. This is a really interesting word, a really interesting concept. It's related to how Donald would describe sin. Tell us a wee bit more about that. Explain what explain what this for the person who's never heard what anomia means. Uh, some people are probably thinking of the chemical that smells really bad that they looked at in a, in high school. It's not yeah, yeah. So yeah, and so uh, yeah, McLeod is always every statement that you say about him. I feel like you always could qualify that statement. Um, yeah. So you know, the moment you say McLeod was all about the good news of the gospel, you know, he would also want to emphasize the gravity of sin. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't, he didn't see those as contrary ideas. He was looking for ways to communicate the gravity of sin. And I think the main way that he landed on communicating the gravity of sin was this idea of anomia, which is the Greek word for lawlessness. Yeah. And he gets this from the book of first John, where first John says that sin is lawlessness. And when McLeod talks about anomia, as he writes about it in his theology, it's to say that sin is lawlessness is not just to say that sin is bad. He's almost talking about it in, and I'm, I'm kind of riffing here. I haven't looked at my work on this in a, in a few months, but uh, it's not just to say that sin is bad. It's to say that it's almost to describe it as if you're describing it in terms of like the laws of physics. So when we, when we talk about the laws of physics, we're describing the way that the world is. Um, and we, our, our, our minds could not imagine the laws of physics being anything other than what they are. Yeah. And McLeod would say, you know, when you sin, you are doing something completely irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's as, it's a, it is as irrational as if you could imagine the laws of physics being defied. And what he's trying to emphasize is, uh, his definition of anomia is um, the, my, the way that I've described it, it's the negation of what ought to occur in a normally functioning universe. That sounds like a big phrase, but <laughs> it's essentially saying, you know, God made the world to function in a certain way. Uh, he made humans to function in a certain way. Not like robots, but you know, we were meant to never murder. We were meant yeah. to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when when Adam first sinned, he was doing something as as unthinkable as if the laws of physics were being defied. And, and so he runs with that and he says, you know, Anomia becomes more than just sin. It becomes a word that he uses to describe everything that's wrong with this world that isn't as it should be. So in some sense, you know, the, the suffering that you and I experience, the suffering that people experience in this world is a form of lawlessness. It's to say the world was meant to work in a certain way. It was meant to you know, abide by certain laws. And sin has come into the world and it has introduced lawlessness into the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk about this in my research. I think, you know, I, I asked him where he got this from once. And he said, well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, obviously, because, uh, <laughs> because the Shorter Catechism says sin is uh, any want of conformity to the law of God. Yeah. But I, th- I also think he's drawing on other places. His, his work looks really similar to T.F. Torrance on this point, which is interesting because interesting. Uh, him and T.F. Torrance were often known for butting heads rather than agreeing <laughs> with one another. Yep. Yeah. His doctrine of anomia may be his most unique contribution to the theology. Maybe somebody else will come and write a PhD about it. But it's really interesting. I, I, the first time I read him write about sin, you know, as a layperson, I thought 
subjectively, this this describes my experience of sin. As yeah. you know, why why did you do this? Yeah. You know, at the end of myself, I just have to say I don't know why I did it. It was it was foolish. It was irrational. Yeah. One of the things that McLeod will emphasize is we often want to give a reason for sin. We want to explain sin, uh, but the, at the heart of sin is this irrationality. It can't be explained. Yeah, I love what you said there. How what you discovered in his writings actually just resonated with what we experience. And I think that that was one of MacLeod's great gifts, that he he could take these concepts, whether it's sin or whatever it might be, and set it forth in terms that certainly I have always found you read it and you're like, ah, that makes sense. That that makes sense of my experience. That 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 makes sense and that clarifies this concept for me. And that, that clarity that he brought to subjects was one of his... Uh, many, many gifts. You spoke about connecting with the way we feel. Donald McLeod's been called, in, in the past, he's been called the people's theologian. He had a massive, in many ways, a big career as a kind of journalist, writing in papers, uh, contributing columns. Tell us a wee bit about that. Have you looked into that side of things? Yeah. So one of the arguments that I make in my research is to really understand who McLeod was as a theologian to you know, kind of get behind his thinking. You can't just read his books. You have to engage with his journalism and you have to engage with his preaching. Uh, so I spent weeks at the National Library of Scotland uh, photocopying all of his West Highland Free Press articles. So McLeod was from 1977 to 1990, he was the editor of the monthly record of the Free Church of Scotland, which is a monthly magazine that the Free Church produces. And so every month you have him um, giving some kind of essay piece, which is usually theological. Um, yeah. And those essays went on to make up several of the books that he ended mm -hmm. up publishing. Uh, and then he would also have a section that he called Focus, which is where he would just talk about his view of current events and try to speak on those issues from a Christian perspective. For a lot of people, this was their introduction to McLeod because his writing was so lucid. I've heard two journalists say that when they were working at other news organizations, one of them was the BBC, uh, they would race to get the monthly record to see what McLeod had said, and then they would just report on what he had said as if it was news. <laughs> you know, because here you, know, here you have uh, one, of, one of the Free Church's best-known theologians offering commentary on public events in a time period that stretches from, was it Edward Heath that was just before Margaret Thatcher? Yeah, it was. Edward Heath to Rishi Sunak, you have this uh, almost nonstop public commentary, which is unusual for a theologian, to say the least. And then around 1994, he begins to write on a weekly basis for the West Highland Free Press, which was a, um, a regional newspaper in the Highlands and Islands, which was by no means a Christian newspaper. But he was invited to give his commentary without qualification it is rare the number of theologians that have been given a platform like that where, as a Christian, they could speak to non-Christian audiences consistently for years and years. Um, and of course, you know, he was invited because he was willing to talk about politics. He was decidedly left-wing, I think would be an understatement. <laughs> and and that, that frustrated a lot of people about his writing. A lot of people would say, you know, I love McLeod the theologian. I love McLeod the preacher. I don't like McLeod the journalist. And some people would say the very opposite. Yeah, um, yeah. But what struck me about his writings and why I think it was worthy to include in my research is whatever you think of his conclusions politically, 
he was self-consciously writing as a Christian theologian. You know, he would say, here's my, here's my political view, but I have a Christian theology that I, think's, that I think backs up that view. I've heard a lot of people who would say, you know, I, I really don't agree with McLeod's politics, but I loved reading him because I found him so thought-provoking. And I, I actually, I saw an atheist, I mean, someone post on Facebook who self-identified as an atheist, and they said, you know, McLeod didn't make me a Christian. Uh, but when I read him, he made me ask myself a lot of questions about what I believe. And if I could paraphrase what I, what I understood him to be saying was, he made me aware that I was an atheist. Yeah. McLeod was so clearly offering a Christian view that anyone who, yeah, he was, he was just challenging the, the, the commonly held assumptions of the people that he was writing to. Mm. I think that's a great point for, for us as preachers. Um, to reflect deeply on that, you know, will our preaching, our writing in whatever context, will it help people think about their own position as we write self-consciously as Christians and challenge people's assumptions? Yeah, it's a really good point. Hunter, you recently wrote an article, um, an outstanding art, a journal article, where you asked a question really, is McLeod a liberation theologian? There's a resemblance between McLeod's journalistic writings and uh, much that we see in, in liberation theology. You want to speak to that just for a moment and just tell us, yeah, what was what was your thesis and what was your conclusion in that piece? Yeah, it's probably good for for you to ask that because um, the Times Scotland quoted me in uh, in their obituary to McLeod and basically said, you know, Hunter Nicholson says that Donald McLeod is a, is a liberation theologian. Well, you are is, the world's leading expert on McLeod, so no wonder. Which is not what I was trying to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think what was interesting, I mean, when I was reading his West Ham Free Press articles in the 90s, multiple times he was ref he would casually reference liberation theologians. And I knew enough about liberation theology to recognize that some of the language that he would write in sometimes could not have come from anywhere else except from liberation theology, like some of the specific terms. Um, which raises the question, like, what, what, what was his relationship to liberation theology? And so the article was just trying to say, to what extent could you label someone like him a liberation theologian? And the point that I was trying to make is, I think the point that I arrive at in the end is, yes, he uses some of the language of liberation theology, and he even shares some of the concerns of liberation theology. But the best way to explain that is not by saying, He's a liberation theologian who has, you know, been a he's a follower of Latin American liberation theology. Is that there's actually something uh, indigenous to Scottish Highland theology, or I think I said Scottish, uh, especially Highland Reformed theology, uh, that shares a lot of concerns with um, Latin American liberation theology. And I think maybe the best example would be both in Latin American liberation theology and in Scottish Reformed theology in the Highlands, there's a big concern around land reform. And that was one of, yeah. that's something McLeod wrote about all the time was this question of, um, is the distribution of land in our country equitable? And, and he would say no. And so he wrote a lot about it that. That's so interesting. And I think that just touches on on you know what you were saying before about someone ready to, to write about so many real issues for um for people, and again that kind of comes back to to yeah just what we were saying about having 
both the opportunity to speak about that in, in, in something like the West Highland Free Press, but the courage to actually to, to speak and to, to make these points. And that's something that, that really comes across um, uh, powerfully in his life. Um, whenever you're researching somebody, especially someone that you that you like, you know, so you read his you you read his Christology books at RTS, you know, and and you think, oh wow, this is somebody who's really interesting. This is somebody, you know, that I, I would love to study. You then go on to do do research, you know, right up to a high academic level. How do you maintain objectivity? So for listeners, one of the dangers when you're doing academic study is you can do something called hagiography, which is basically where you just write about how amazing somebody is. And you don't really want to kind of talk about anything where you maybe challenge them or question them. And an academic at an academic level, you, you, you can't really do that because um, it, it comes across as biased. Um, how have you navigated that, Hunter? Because that, that must have been... Uh, been hard. I mean, if I wrote a PhD on Cunningham, it would be three words long, uh, four words long. He is a legend, full stop. <laughs> so that, would, that would be. Well, all you I did write a PhD on Wellington Cunningham, didn't you? <laughs> Not Cunningham, sorry, Donald McLean. <laughs> <laughs> Dear me, I'm getting my uh, getting my heroes mixed up here. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that is a challenge. I think for you know any any young person who you know wants to go to PhD studies, you know. You know, as you think about what do I want to write about, you, you often think about your the people that you have read the most, and, and I believe that's often people that you you like, and um, and so yeah, it, it would be a it would be a big no no to to go into your PhD studies and say I'm writing this this dissertation this thesis to show people how awesome I think this person is. Yeah. McLeod is has you know such a vast array of views and he's even changed in some of his views over time so much that I don't think anybody could read all of his works and agree with everything that he says. So in some sense that makes it a bit easier going into it. I knew that I disagreed with McLeod on a number of issues. Yeah. When you write about something like his view of passability, I think what you have to do is you have to do the best you can to explain what he was trying to say and what he and what he said i mean he's a great writer he doesn't need an interpreter in some senses but uh and then you try to say well you know there's points in his discussion on this topic where you know you could raise critiques and say you know maybe he didn't he didn't represent this position very well when he wrote or he has introduced this paradox into theology without realizing it and i will say one of the things that is just fascinating about mcleod is mcleod um he he didn't mind paradoxes yeah. Um, I know that he used to say in class, and he would write, write often that consistency is the virtue of small minds. Uh, <laughs> and he, he would say he got that from his professor, R.A. Finlayson. I think it was originally an Emerson quote. Okay. Um, but in that sense, when he says that, I think it gives me as a researcher permission to say, you know, there, there is an, an inconsistency that I see in McLeod's thought on this point. And oftentimes it's the case that McLeod himself recognized the inconsistency. And he would say, yes, I'm inconsistent on this point, but I I still think it's the best that we can do with the information we have. Yeah, that's good. That is good. And of course, I think McLeod himself modeled just what you described, because you see, you know, he engages so much with, um, with, with theologians that came before him. And my research was on William Cunningham, who Donald McLeod would have said was his favorite theologian. And yet there are times when Donald McLeod takes issue with things that Cunningham says. So uh, he himself modeled that that balance of recognizing what he can appreciate, um, but also uh, having the courage to say, I don't I don't agree here. 
He wrote a really interesting monthly record piece one time on a biography that had been written about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one thing he says in, in the review is, you know, to me, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a hero. But it's one thing to say that someone's a hero, and it's another thing to, to make a hagiography of them and to yeah. say, we only want to talk about his good parts. And I think McLeod would have been, he would be offended if all we ever talked about was what we liked about McLeod. He wanted people to challenge him. Even in the classroom, you know, I have all these recordings of his different classes, and uh, he, he almost sounds annoyed sometimes <laughs> whenever he would say a controversial position and no one would challenge him on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, he would tell his students, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily care if you agree with me. I want you to learn to think for yourself. Yeah. And so oftentimes, you know, his most controversial positions, he would invite his students to not agree with him on that. Yeah. Um, and I, I respect him about that just as a, as a thinker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thomas, do you remember as students, we would walk out of his classes and it, I, I can remember those moments where he'd, he'd invite challenge, but many of us were far too um, respectful to who he was that we didn't want to show our ignorance by um, fighting back. But I can assure you that in the common room or upstairs and over the tables, we'd often discuss some of his minority viewpoints or some of the, you know, the challenging statements he threw out. One of Don McLeod's greatest gifts was helping us to think by challenging us, you know, with, with uh, theological statements that, that he often made in his class. Hunter, just, just thinking about McLeod, you've mentioned Ari Finlayson, you've mentioned, we've mentioned William Cunningham. Who were some of the other influences on McLeod's thought? Um, I, I heard, I think it was Alan McDonald that referenced the other day there in that, the, the, the service that, you know, he was someone who was shaped deeply by his home island of Lewis and the, the people, the men and women from it. Um, and that's always just struck me about McLeod is that the people he used to often hold up as examples were ordinary men and women, faithful saints. Um, but yeah, from your, your study of McLeod, who, who are some of his influences? What made him the person he was? Yeah. I mean, if you talk in terms of theologians, I've heard him in a recording say that his kind of three great load stars, the people who have influenced him the most were Cunningham, he considered to be the greatest Scottish theologian. Um, Gresham Machen and B.B. Warfield would be the other two that he would mm -hmm. say, uh, which is a bit surprising because sometimes he was a bit critical of America's influence on, uh, <laughs> on Scottish theology. So, I mean, I think those, those would, be, would be three that he would look to the most. Basically, any, any Reformed Scottish theologian, he had something to say about. You know, he, he loved Samuel Rutherford, Alexander Henderson. In, in a lot of his political views, he would cite... 19th century theologians like Thomas Chalmers, Thomas Guthrie, who didn't take his view, but he would use them as examples of men who had engaged in society. I think McLeod is also known for being willing to reach far outside of his tradition yeah. on the issue of divine passibility. He'll cite Jürgen Moltmann, and at the same time, he'll be critical of him on that topic. In Christ Crucified, he doesn't mention Moltmann at all, but he mentions uh, Joseph Ratzinger quite a bit. Uh, yes. the, uh, yeah, was that Pope Benedict XVI? There wasn't anyone that he would have been offended by engaging with. He wrote a, a piece about the Free Church College in the 20th century. And I think one of his disappointments about the Free Church College in the 20th century, you know, was that there wasn't enough done to engage outside the strictly Reformed tradition. I think his own work represented, in his mind, a remedying of that, a willingness to engage with all, all of Christianity. Yeah, I think that's that's a 
I think such a wise lesson for us all. And I think, you know, for, for us, you know, in the free church and for me way up in the Highlands, it's so easy for us to just stay in our own wee corner and uh uh, and, and and try to block out the voices that 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 maybe don't agree but but Donald's openness to that I think enriched his thinking and we all benefited from that hugely I loved what you said about um you know how he he also uh, just just benefited from ordinary believers um I mean I love the dedication at the start of uh, of the person of Christ where he says dedicated to my parents my first and best tutors in Christology and I think I thought that was just wonderful you know and um uh, and it's interesting you know I, I I know people in my own congregation um and community who, who've known Donald McLeod for years some of them were, were in his congregation in Glasgow in the 70s and speaking to them one of the things that really comes across so powerfully is that you know they they admired his theology they loved his books and everything else but i think what they loved most is that they felt that he cared for them and even right up to you know to 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 the present day um he just showed that care for these people um with whom he had such a close affinity and such a close bond and that that pastoral heart um that's something we mentioned last week's uh, podcast uh, that's something that that uh was always there and, and always came across uh, strongly. You know, you're coming to the end of your of your work. Um, what would you love to see being done about McLeod? Yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody who would be interested in coming to study McLeod, either at uh, ETS or at New College, should, should, should think about it and should consider it. I think, it, you know, it was hard for me to come and do, do this project because nothing had been done before. So in a lot of my writing, I'm having to just lay fundamental groundwork about who he was, like what, what are the basic things you can say about his thought. Um, you know, I, but there's so much more that you could study about McLeod. I think if, if, if I could come and do another PhD, I think it would be on his ecclesiology. Yeah. You know, I think, I think McLeod would say that was, that, was, that was Scotland's great contribution to systematic theology, was its work in the area of ecclesiology. I think I'm not wrong in saying that he would say that. And that's probably where in his writing, perhaps aside from Christology, he's the most articulate. And he's living at the end of the 20th century where, you know, of course there was a major split in the free church in 2000, but he's also writing at a time when you have big groups of evangelicals leaving the Church of Scotland. Uh, you have constant conflicts within the Anglican church about what do evangelicals do who are in there. And McLeod was often invited to speak to these groups to, to give advice from his perspective. And I, I think, um, and I would, love, I would love for someone to come and try to put all of his thoughts on ecclesiology together because I, I don't know how to organize it all myself. I just haven't yeah. been able to sit down and put the time into that because, you know, he loves the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, and he's also trying to figure out kind of the, the anomaly of the fact that someone like a John Stott has more in common with the free church than he does with some people in his own denomination. Yeah. So how do you think about some of the wider unity within evangelicalism in the UK? And I think those are questions that all of us, well, you know, I may go back to America, but you know, anyone who stays here is going to have to wrestle with, you know, there's yeah. so many different groups of Christians in different denominations who do share a lot of fundamental concerns. And how do we reflect that in our polity? What is, what is the future of faithful reformed, evangelicalism within Scotland in the next hundred years. Yeah. 
I think that's such an important point. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, ecclesiology was massive to him. And I think that, that uh, that's a, that's a, that'll be a brilliant area for someone to explore. Well, as we draw things to a close, we've forgotten to do one of the most important aspects of our podcast. He's right, I'm wrong. But since this is a McLeod special, um, I think it'd be good to hear what, what's our favourite Donald McLeod book. The first book I read by him was a little short book. Uh, I remember picking it up from, from Glory to Golgotha. I can't remember all of its context, but it addressed certain issues relating to who Christ is and what Christ has done the fallenness, temptation, and I had never thought about many of these issues deeply, but I just remember having vistas in my mind opened. I remember it was, it, like, it just blew me away, breathtaking yeah. in, in his theology and who Christ was, and I was just worshipping the whole way through. It, it was a feast for the mind and for the soul. And that's what McLeod had the ability to do. And it was a short little book. Um, I can't remember how many chapters were in it, but it was captivating. Um, so that's my... That's your vote, Andy. Book. Excellent. Yeah. Hunter, what about you? Yeah, this isn't the book I would recommend first, but I think the one that I often go back to the most is his book, uh, Behold Your God, which is... Uh, it's essentially a compilation of a lot of articles that he wrote, mostly in the monthly record. So, and it gives you kind of a, what, a snapshot of what his kind of favorite writing style was, which was that short article, but that still covered a lot of depth. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that book, um, Behold Your God. There's a, there's a passage in it that I've never forgotten where he's talking about, historically, there was kind of often in the early church, there was big arguments about um, the source of the deity in the Godhead. And so uh, in, in some of the Eastern traditions, you had quite a strong emphasis on how the Son and the Spirit found their source in the Father. And they would push that language quite far to the point where you, know, you kind of had a subordination from the Father to the, to the Son, to the Spirit. And, and Donald, in one of those moments, a bit like what you described earlier, where he, he used language to make things so clear, he said, he said uh, you, we have to forget about this whole idea of source he said, source and divinity don't go together. The, the divine does not have a source. And then he wrote, and the, the, the book has this in it, we have to throw the whole caboodle out the window. And I've never forgotten that because I'd never seen the word caboodle written down before, let alone in a, in a theology book. And, and it was like, so, so I've always like, so ever since then, whenever I sniff uh, subordinationism of any sort I just think I'm throwing that caboodle out the window so that's a that's a great book uh, I think for my favorite oh it's it's really tough um oh I I'm I'm absolutely torn because I I do love uh his his Scottish theology book therefore the truth I speak found that really really helpful I've loved Scottish theology and uh and uh, God willing I think a second volume will be coming out um but I think I think I'd have to pick Christ Crucified um, just the, the, it's just an amazing book, and and the uh, the heights that it takes you to in terms of the the atonement is um, is remarkable. And he, I, I think in your in your obituary in uh, in the Gospel Coalition, Hunter, you said he he stretches you to the limits of the English language to describe what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And that I thought that was such a brilliant sentence because that really does sum up Donald MacLeod. 
Um, but what about if you never read McLeod before? Hunter, where would you say to somebody, where would you tell someone to start if they're, um, if they're going to read, uh, read McLeod for the first time? Yeah, I think his most popular book and most accessible book is A Faith to Live By. Uh, and if you read the preface, it was actually a series of lectures that he gave over a course of I think, several years at a church in Glasgow. Okay, yeah. uh, and so you, you get a sense for who he was as a speaker, and uh, it, it really covers a lot of the basics of systematic theology. And uh, yeah, it's just a wonderful book. Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, it's available from Christian Focus Publications, who are our wonderful sponsor. So uh, uh, yeah, it is a it is a fantastic book and uh, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely worth, uh, worth reading. Well, Hunter, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, it's been an absolute joy uh, to learn more about Donald McLeod and hear more about Donald McLeod. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us today for this special uh, episode on Donald McLeod. We will be coming to you very soon uh, with a, another podcast. Uh, we've got a special guest and we've got a, not a special, but a, a, an interview with Dan Steele. Um, and so we're looking forward to, to sharing that with you as well. Um, just to say, please do get in touch for more uh, topics or questions that you have that you'd love Thomas and I uh, to address. Um, we've really enjoyed this journey so far with Jesus Today podcast and we're looking forward to taking it up to the next level so your feedback would be greatly appreciated but until next time, thank you. Thank you.